So yes, thank you for being here at 3.15 on a Friday. I'm really thankful. I'm Lauren Beggert, and I work in the office of the chaplain as the assistant chaplain. I work for Sarah, which is an honor, but also very intimidating to follow her after last night. I tell people that um, she preached next level fire. So, thank you. Amen. Um, but I also say that because I'm here because she gives me agency um, and because of the privilege that I carry for being who I am. And so I want to say that as part of knowing that I'm here and thankful for that opportunity and for people who have given me agency in my life to be here. Um, so part of what I do here at Pepperdine is I... Um, this is, I've almost come around to complete my seventh year here, and the biggest thing that I've had the opportunity working with is student-led ministries. At Pepperdine, these are ministries sort of um, envisioned by students, created by students, and led by students. And so um, when I came to Pepperdine, I, I got to see what was happening with that and sort of imagine how we would evolve and develop that program um, from simply that to what it is today. Um, and I also am married to Taylor, he's in the corner, and um, Taylor is a worship artist in the LA area. Together we co-founded Well Collective, which is um, a community of local worship artists who partner together to do two things. Number one, to write songs we feel like the church isn't currently singing, so that's songs of uh, lament or um, you know, other songs that we think create a more complete modern liturgy to music. And secondly, to provide worship artists to churches in transition or who can't afford um, someone to come lead on a Sunday morning uh, worship space. So lots of worship in my life, as you can imagine, and, um, and that's what I think I can contribute to this conversation. But I also acknowledge that I'm a co-learner with you. And I once had a, a student-led ministry leader who, before she preached or spoke or even, like, tried to get to know me, she would always say, um, Lauren, when I'm speaking, you need to, number one, be engaged, and number two, talk back. And um, for me, that, that really highlights a co-learning environment. And so, uh, please, be engaged, feel free to get snacks, and, and talk back. I really see this as a communal time of learning. And... Um, while I have things to contribute to this conversation, I know that you do too, and, and I would hope to learn from you as well. So, uh, different than a lecture, I hope we can be a community of conversation today. And with that, um, why don't I pray over our time to begin. God, we are here, postured and ready to receive something from you. Would you refresh us in this time? Would you encourage us in this time? Would you refine us as dedicated servants to your kingdom? God, speak where my words fall silent and make yourself known in this space. Amen. Amen. All right, so oftentimes I, I get a question of why I think empowering and equipping emerging adults is important. And um, emerging adults is a, is a fairly new term. Someone was in here before and said, what are emerging adults? And so I wanna give you a profile of what an emerging adult is and what sort of is going on in their life. Um, one of the benefits of working in an academic environment is people are always <laughs> throwing learning at you and your way and coming in. And so, um, this is information that I've gathered from my colleague, Rachel Hargis and the Collins in the back, and um, also from Dr. Steve Argue from Fuller Theological Seminary. And, um, and what he says is that emerging adults um, are ages 18 to 30, so that there's this adolescent period, and then there's an adult period, and we often like to say that begins at 18, but really research is showing that there's this, um, this, center, this middle period of 18 to 30 where students or where, where um, emerging adults neither feel like a teenager or a, an adult quite yet. And um, he describes five main features, features of an emerging adult. First, that they're going through this process of identity exploration. Who am I? What is my sexuality? What do I believe? I mean, imagine there's this massive detachment from 
family or from your culture, especially going into college into a new culture, or maybe you've moved across country for an opportunity or whatever it might be. So there's a lot of identity exploration happening as your worldview is expanding. Um, second, there's a, a, a huge presence of instability. And I don't mean that they're emotionally unstable. That's not what I'm talking about here. But that because there's a lot of transition happening in your life. I mean, I remember when I was in college, I moved six times in that four-year period. There's so much moving and studying abroad. And um, even, even when you're at college, you're going home for a different break. So the transition in, in an emerging adult's life is, is massive, and it, it leads to instability. Third, um, there's a self-focused tendency. And I, I don't mean self-centered, this is self-focused. So there's a lack of accountability to other people or to other things that they're a part of. Um, one of the greatest examples I have of this is recently I was wrapping up uh, preaching workshops that we do and we had a cohort of six students. And it was a Thursday at uh, five o'clock, I think we were doing a dinner. And, um, and I, I kid you not, I had six students around this table and we were doing this check-in, I was asking how they were doing, and four of them confessed that they woke up from a four-hour nap to get to this preaching cohort meeting. And I thought, I cannot imagine room in my life where I could take a four-hour nap in the middle of a Thursday. So this is, this is what I mean about self-focus and, and lack of accountability there. It's, um, but, but one of the conversations I was having with Rachel is that the exception is minoritized communities here. They're very much aware of so what's happening at home and in their communities and cultures. Um, so fourth is this sense of feeling in between, and I, I alluded to this earlier. Not really a child, but not really an adult, not a teenager, not an adult. Um, and it's, it's an awkward phase of, of that, especially combined with identity exploration. And finally, they're faced with unparalleled possibilities. There's extreme optimism um, there. They, they, they see a world full of opportunity and adventure. Um, I don't often like to share, well, sometimes I share stories of students. And um, recently, I, I was talking with a student who who came in um, as, a, as a business major and was very excited about being a business major and had discerned a calling into uh, vocational ministry. And so we would have discussions as they studied abroad and returned about what vocational ministry would be like. And I would say things like, well, aren't you going to change your major? Are you sure you want to do business when you know you're going go to go to seminary after? And they would say, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. I think I'm going to stay with business. And um, so as we approached graduation season, I said, hey, what are, you, uh, what are you thinking for seminary now? And the student said, oh, now I'm thinking law school. I think I want to go to law school. And I was like, oh, OK, well, you want to be a lawyer? <laughs> we had four years of seminary in mind. Um, so I think that that, for me, highlights the, the extreme optimism that this this emerging adulthood has. Um, of, I can be anything that I want to be, and God is opening up all these opportunities to me, and I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. So um, now that is just facts about emerging adults in general. And here are some things that Steve shared with us, Dr. R. Stark shared with us about uh, Christian college students specifically. 88%, I'm just going to go through these because I think they speak through their, for themselves. 88% of undergraduates' religious preferences stem from the Christian tradition. 81% attend religious services occasionally or frequently. I think that's an encouraging statistic, maybe one that is higher than we would have considered walking in here. 40% consider it essential or very important to follow religious teachings in everyday life. Two-thirds pray daily. I'm, I'm encouraged by that. If you can fit a four-hour nap in, that you're also um, praying. 80% uh, discuss religion, spirituality with friends. 67% with family. I think that's encouraging. Here's where it gets a little surprising to me, disorienting. 65% can identify that they have felt distant from God. And 57% have questioned their religious beliefs. 
And so I'm sitting here as someone who works with emerging adults asking this question, what does it look like to empower them to do ministry in the midst of their questioning who they are, feeling and maybe uh, uncertain of what's going on with their life, having questions about God, feeling distant from God? How do we ask an emerging adult to pour out and to lead people in a ministerial capacity when, when this is the reality of what's happening in their lives? Um, and and I, I, I think maybe, just maybe, this is part of what's contributing to church burnout for, for young people in ministry. The third and final thing I want to talk about, though there's much more, is um, emerging adults and spiritual struggle. And this might be the most convicting piece of it for me. Spiritual struggle, as Dr. Argue describes, is, a, is the critical moments people experience when they realize that their spirituality must change to accommodate new experiences or information. And the example he gives to describe spiritual struggle is if you imagine a water bottle or some sort of container. I think I have container here right so I, I come to college or I start my my emerging adulthood life with this water bottle and it is filled with my worldview my experiences the things from childhood that I learned the, the things from church or culture that I've acquired right and it feels very comfortable and it's very full and I can drink of it and it, it's good right but then I come to college or I, I start a new experience and my worldview begins to expand and I start to interact with people who have different beliefs or um, different values than I do. I begin to learn things about the Bible that kind of rock me a little bit, you know. Um, I begin to question the things that I knew were, were full and, and on and on and on. And the idea is that then I'm trying to cram a big giant chair inside of my small container. It doesn't fit, right? Mm -hmm. And so, spirit, so, so spiritually mature, uh, uh, well, the argument is spiritual struggle is when we can't fit that in mm -hmm. and our faith breaks apart, right? Um, but uh, we can also, students, okay, we can also um, learn how to expand our container to accommodate new experiences and new friendships or, or the other. Anything you want to add to that, Rachel, who took Steve Argue's class at Fuller <laughs> Seminary? Um, so that's, that's the example of spiritual struggle. So now I ask myself here, um, and, and I don't know about you, but when I hear about this data, my soul screams to help these emerging adults. And not in a let me tell you how to live your life or um, lead your life, but please let me share with you tools and resources that can help you navigate this time of your life. Or at the very least, can I do life with you? Can I um, be Jesus when, when you aren't sure who Jesus is for you in your life? Can I be a safe space for you to process the struggle you're in or the places of doubt or the burdens that, that you carry? Um, and, and honestly, isn't that what ministry is about in the first place? Isn't it about pointing people to Jesus? Not just to see what we lack and label us as sinful, but to redirect our attention to what God is inviting us to be a part of. To see how we are, uh, we are participants in God's restoration in the world. Um, and if, and if, I, if I let emerging adults do this on their own, what does that say about me? Or what does that say about us? Um, about us, their teachers, their mentors, the people who give them titles and positions and agency and authority. So imagine if empowering a college student to pastor a ministry or to lead a worship or lead a worship service or um, or even a young adult in whatever 18 to 30 category. I mean, I'm speaking this remembering that everybody grows up, right? So in this season of life, you will eventually, hopefully, get to a place of adulthood leading a church. Um, so if we're imagining this um, and empowering them simply meant giving them permission to do so in the midst of all this going on in their life, um, their lives look like they've been tossed into a blender. Honestly, my life felt like it had been tossed into a blender at this period in my life. And so to expect someone to lead pastorally from a blender doesn't sound too wise to me. Um, and this is why I believe it's important to empower and equip 
uh, emerging adult ministers. And I do mean worship rather broadly here. Um, worship as our act of service and obedience um, and praise or even lament to God. And, um, and I suppose that's a very small definition, but, but good enough for now. So I want to take a moment to pause because um, sometimes when information is coming at me, I think that the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and convicting to me, and if I keep going, um, I don't give time to pause and let God speak. So I want to give us time to pause and let God speak. And I don't know if you want this, but I have printed paper <laughs> um, that I'll pass around. And, um, And I just want to take a moment to give room for God to speak. I want to take a moment to consider our own context where emerging adults are present in our lives and, um, and, con and, and consider the information that I just shared. What is the spirit making known to you that, that you want to consider um, right now? And I'll just give us a couple minutes to do this. As you're wrapping up your final thoughts, um, <clears throat> I want to, uh, so, sometimes when I think about the, the nature of, the, of, of what an emerging adult is experiencing, I feel a little overwhelmed <laughs> by, by how to address it all. And I think, how do I sit down and, and teach, a, teach a student or um, someone I'm mentoring that's out of college about, about these things or through these things. And then I'm reminded that, you know, before they're going to hear my lessons, they're going to see my lessons. And that um, emerging adults in particular are watching. They're watching how I live my life, how I do my life. And I think that the, the, as much as I want the lessons that I teach to be the lessons that they hear, um, oftentimes the lessons that they learn are, are what they see or observe in me. And so um, for that, I want to spend some time talking about us as, as ministers, as people who empower, as the people who power, empower and equip um, emerging adults in ministry. Um, I want uh, us to, I, I want these these emerging adults to learn from us, to listen to us, and model us. And I think when I was younger, I, I would always ask my mom when we were on an airplane, why, you know, the, the flight attendant gets out there and does a little spiel about saving your life if, the, God forbid, the plane crash. And I never understood why 
when the oxygen masks come down, my mom was supposed to put it on me before her, you know? She was my mom. Um, and now I understand that it's because if I'm not alive to care for my son, who's going to care for him, you know? And, and I think the same concept applies here, too. Like, if, if we aren't practicing these things, um, what is it showing to our students how, or our emerging adults? How are we going to pour out and equip? How are they going to understand what that looks like? Um, and uh, there's a, we read as a team a book by Jamie Smith. I don't know if, if all, many of you are familiar, but um, now I'm blanking on the book name. What's it called? You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love, yes. And in it, he creates this um, basically um, argument that we can know everything we want to know about something, but if we aren't practicing what we do, then it can't become a habit. And he uses the example of, um, of dieting, right? He, his wife is a vegan or vegetarian or something, so he reads all these, yeah, are you a vegetarian? Vegan. Vegan, okay, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, reads all these books and learns what there is to know, um, but still chooses to eat the McDonald's hamburger or whatever it is. But and he says, like, I know all there is to know, but my doing isn't forming a habit. And, and so I want to propose to us that we remember three lessons for habit forming as, um, as we empower and equip these worship ministers. So three lessons for us to remember. The first is to educate and equip ourselves. Um, I think this looks different for everyone, um, but, but the biggest thing I like to speak about is excellence, not perfection. And what I mean by that is I sincerely believe that God has given us all unique giftings. And sometimes, especially on a Sunday morning, this can look like, um, or, or whatever for my students, whatever their worship space is, sometimes we say, oh, just do your best, God. God loves you anyways, right? But God has given us these gifts. And so we should give our best gifts back to God. And this is what I mean by excellence, really doing your best to God. But this does not mean perfection. God has given us gifts, so we allow God to refine and use our gifts in order that we bring our very best, but not perfection, because perfection means we always will fall short. Always, every time. And if you are doing a ministry from a place of perfection, please hear me. You will never be satisfied with what God is doing in your life and through your life because you're trying to be perfect like Jesus. And in doing that, you leave no room for Jesus, right? Perfect people need nothing. And we are broken people in need of Jesus. So please put your perfection to the rest to, the, to rest and lean into the giftings that God has given you with excellence, leaving room for God to move um, and, and God to do the rest. So that's what I mean by excellence, not perfection. And that is probably one of the very first things that, um, that I try to model for my students. Um, second, for me, know your lies and speak truth to them. This is all a part of educating and equipping yourself. Um, I know everyone in this room has lies that we believe about ourselves, especially in ministry. I think this is how evil tries to distract us. And um, one of my lies with working with college students is that they have nothing to learn from me, that I have nothing to teach them. They're so smart, you know, like, what, what do I have to bring? And um, I was on a panel with the president of the Seaver Faculty Association here, and um, I couldn't believe that I was sitting on this panel with her because she's so much more accomplished than I am. And um, I was sitting there thinking, um, wow, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to contribute to this conversation. And she leaned to the students and she says, um, wow, you guys are so, so smart. You're so much smarter than me. But I have, I have, I, I know more things than you. Mm -hmm. And I want to show you those things that I have. And um, for me, that was educating my lie. That was giving truth to my lie. That even though I might not be as smart as these students I'm working with, I have things to share with them. Um, so that's an example for me of what's speaking truth to, my, to one of the lies that I believe is. 
And finally, the third part of this is educate and equip yourself. We haven't arrived. We have not arrived in, in our ministry area. We never do. We keep learning. We stretch ourselves. And if we don't, we only give God permission to move in the limited sphere of where we have given God, of what we have. Um, and this is where I think that um, understanding sexism and racism and all the isms that make up the world becomes important. Because if I'm only staying in my realm of comfortable influence, I'm not giving God permission to, to heal those things, to move in those things, and to use me to, um, to fight those things for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom. Um, so expand your sphere of education so that God can move beyond what, what we've imagined. Um, okay, so second thing is, um, my husband warned me this is a rabbit hole for me, so I'm going to try to do it really fast. Uh, Sabbath and self-care. I love to teach about Sabbath and self-care. I am really bad about Sabbath and self-care. I feel like whenever someone is asking me how I'm doing, I say I'm busy or I'm tired because it's true. And creating space for Sabbath and self-care feels harder than actually doing it. And similarly to what Jamie Smith says in his book, even though I know so much, I love to study what the Bible says about Sabbath. I love to read books and poems about Sabbath. But um, I'm, if I don't do it, it's not a habit of mine. Um, and here's why I think Sabbath is important. Number one, you are being watched by emerging adults. If we're teaching Sabbath and not modeling Sabbath, how can we expect Sabbath to, be, to take place? Um, how can we expect to be able to fully teach it if we're not experiencing it ourselves? Um, and regardless of how we view scripture, uh, we view the creation experience um, in, in the Bible. What we do see is that uh, when Sabbath occurs in the beginning, it's marked holy. That there's something holy about our time, our rhythms of connection, of rest with God and in God. Um, and uh, one of the verses that I refer, or the passages that I reference all the time with students, I know they're sick of it, and I hear them tease me about it behind my back, and it's okay, that's a good thing, is um, Psalm 73. And one of the reasons I love this Psalm of Asaph is because he's so mad. He's lamenting the injustices in the world. And then there comes verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. That line right there is so powerful to me because guess what? Until the end, from that point to the end of, of that psalm, Asaph is seeing God's goodness and, and celebrating God's goodness and provision in his life. There's something, that to me says there's something that happens in the sanctuary moment that reorients us, that refines us, that maybe um, heals us or... Um, even just gives us a, a moment of shalom um, where we can have imagination for something different. So um, that's my Psalm 73 obsession. Um, but I do, I believe that in practicing self-care, God speaks to us and gives us creativity. And that's just not a space to, <coughs> to ignore. Um, okay, that was fast. I'm proud of myself. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, three lessons to remember. The third is time. Um, creating time for things is hard. It really is. But if we truly care about empowering and equipping these emerging adults, then we invest time in preparing for them. And we prepare for trainings for them. Thinking about these statistics that I'm sharing with you should shape how we, like our, the way we educate ourselves should shape what we're training and equipping them to consider, which means we have to spend time developing that. Um, uh, two meetings, I, I feel like I spend so much time preparing, I'm way more time preparing for meetings where I am working with students in ministry than just a staff meeting because I know they're learning and watching me and listening to me in that space. Um, and third, mentoring relationship. Maybe this should have been the most important, but really knowing what's going on in their lives um, can help me understand when things are going well and when things are not going well, what, um, what, what might be 
going on. So mentoring is a, is a massive part of that. All right, so I'm going to do a reflection again. Take a moment to consider your own context um, and the emerging adults in your life and the way that you um, do practice these things for yourself. What might the Spirit be speaking to you from what I just said? We all want food, but we're too lazy to get out. worship ministers and equipping them for successful ministerial worship. Um, lesson one that I have, and this is similar to, to um, educating and equipping ourselves. Number one, we empower them. I love to use the word empower. I probably use it way too much. In fact, one time I wrote a comment on something that was anonymous and Sarah knew that I wrote that comment because I used the word empower. <laughs> Um, but but I, I love it because it, 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 there's a mutuality to that word. It means I'm doing something for them and I'm watching them do something for me. Or I'm experiencing that in return. So this is how I tend to empower uh, emerging adult worship ministers. Number one, number one, I identify their strengths. Um, this can't take place outside of a, a, a personal relationship with this, with this person. If I'm not getting to know them on a personal level, or if I'm not observing them intentionally, there's no way for me to identify their strengths. So number one is identifying their strengths. Number two is seeing if these are passion areas. Um, and the reason that I added that which I learned after I wrote these that this is like basic strengths finders um, <laughs> uh, theory. So I just I'm just gonna pretend that I created it myself. Um, but the reason that I think passion area is important is because people get tired. They get tired, and just because it's a strength doesn't mean that they're gonna keep on doing it. And what I've observed is that if a strength is also a passion area, then they're gonna lean into it more because they have a, an investment in their passion. And this is the place where I empower, where um, strength and passion come together. Um, so uh, think about people in, in your life where, um, or that maybe you're mentoring or raising up that are in this emerging adulthood period. Um, what are their strengths? Are you, are you focused on their strengths and their passions, or is your mind on what you need to teach them to be like you? Because ideally, they have different passions and giftings than we have. 
Um, and then I always say, empower growth and weakness as secondary. If we're always asking someone to lean into their strengths and passions and they feel successful in that, it's way easier to call out the weaknesses and ask them to lean into that because they're doing it from a place of overflow and success and not a place of feeling like, ah, I can never be enough. Um, so that's my, my idea for that. But I think this, this definitely requires discernment and, and empathy on, on our behalf as teachers as mentors, um, and it, it, it also requ it requires that, that the emerging adult, the person who's in this process, is teachable. Um, because sometimes that, that's just not present. Um, and so I, I like to give myself permission to say that when I don't feel like I'm doing a good job with that. The second lesson similar to us is teaching self-care and Sabbath. And, um, and I don't mean this in a way that, um, that you know, when, when an emerging adult comes to you and they're burned out and tired, you teach them status. I mean habit forming from the get-go. Um, and hopefully, you know, even when, if I'm doing it well, I'm practicing that with them or asking how it goes and sharing how it goes for me and the lessons that I've learned or what God is speaking to me or showing to me in my times of, um, of status. So help them create rhythms and commitments at the start of their ministry, not when they're tired. Um, yeah. And finally, teach them about time in relation to ministry. Time is a very odd construct as it is, but for an emerging adult, you can take a four-hour nap on a Thursday afternoon. So, um, uh, so teaching someone that excellence requires time is important. You can't just show up and be excellent because God made you good at something. Mm -hmm. and, um, and while that would be great if that was the case, it's not. Um, so excellence requires time. And I think that we need to be clear about their time commitment. I often think about when I wanted to be an RA in college and I look back on that experience applying and think that I saw 2% of the 100% of the picture of what the <coughs> job was. And, um, and I think that it sometimes, especially in a place of ministry, you observe ministry from a distance, it looks really pretty. But when you get into it, it's not really pretty. And it takes a lot of time and emotional toil. So being clear about um, the time commitment helps create an honest picture of what you're stepping into. And third, um, and maybe, maybe most importantly under the time relationship, is accountability. Um, this is hard because oftentimes it comes from a place of conflict. It means that um, I've identified something that's not going well, uh, time that's not being spent, and I need to address it. And, um, and, uh, and so here I want to say that leaning into conflict here is actually an act of love. It means that I so care about your success that I'm going to call out where I don't see it and show you love by walking you through to a successful place. Um, it does not look like avoiding it. It means leaning into it as an act of love. Um, and finally, in, in accountability, I like to take notice of the times when things are going really, really well, when I see the excellence being displayed, so that when the excellence isn't being displayed, I can say, hey, remember when, uh, can we get back to that? How can I help you get back to that? Um, so that, that would be the thing for accountability. Um, any questions? Yeah, oh, sorry. Can you tell a story about when Sarah held you accountable to something? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. A real uh, question. Yeah, no, but definitely. It's a real question? No, no, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not really joking, I'm just. Yeah. We'd like to hear how that works. How your staff. Sarah holds me accountable. I have one of my staff members here, too. We mm. hold each other accountable. So. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Give an example of how Greg holds you accountable. I could. I could, actually. Oh, my. I think that... Um, I think that accountability with Sarah has always come from a place of encouragement um, and uh, from a place of identifying things in me that I was not wanting to lean into. 
-hmm. you know and so accountability means Mm -hmm. seeing things that I have been blinded to and and lovingly and humbling humbly um, awakening me to that or pushing me when I didn't want to be pushed Mm -hmm. Um, that would be a really big thing uh, with her yeah but with students it's much more practical (laughs) it's like um, it's it's like hey I could tell you didn't write your invocation this week and you winged it you know some something like that and um, but I've I've heard it when you do prepare and you just have this capacity to draw people into the presence of God and I I want you to live lean into that and this is a safe space for you to grow in that so please like I'm happy to help you create it or whatever it is Um, but but that's more it's more practical yeah I apologize if that was out of bounds. No, 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 not at all. It's no, it's just it's good. It's good. Any other questions? Um, okay, so then I want to pause one more time, this last time, and give us a couple minutes to reflect um, on our own ministry context, where emerging adults are in our life, and what we just learned about. Um, empowering and equipping them that we might translate to our personal context. I think sometimes I step into spaces like this hoping someone will teach me one, two, three, ABC, how to be really good at something. And um, the reason that I focus on these points is because they form habits of our heart and our being that I think give space for God to uniquely use us and our giftings to, to empower and equip the people in our communities and our context. Um, so these are my three main lessons. Educate and equip towards excellence, not perfection. To teach self-care and Sabbath. And to give time. And to teach time. Because time is a hard thing to learn. I'm still learning how to navigate time. Um, so it's my prayer uh, for, for you all that these lessons breathe in a way that, um, that fits you. And that equips you and encourages you in your own ministry context. So. That is all I have, but um, would love if you have questions. Um, I'm happy to answer them. And if not, I'll close this in prayer, and, and we can go, and I'm happy to answer questions yeah, after. I don't know that it's a question, mm-hmm. but it, it does strike me, just because we talk about this with students and college students so much, just that the way that you describe their lives being they move a lot, they move, like churches probably 
just see some emerging adults for a short period of time mm -hmm. also. Mm -hmm. For a year or two, they mm -hmm. might be there and be a part of the ministry, mm -hmm. or they might then they might move across town and not be mm -hmm. go to that church mm -hmm. anymore. But I think we tend to equip thinking, oh, this is forever mm -hmm. or long term mm -hmm. rather than so short. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is short term, mm -hmm. and it's valuable even if it's. So I never really thought about that before because mm -hmm. we just know ours are short term. Mm -hmm. But yeah. for churches, people are often, as much as people move, mm -hmm. especially emerging adults, it could be that your season with somebody is a year mm -hmm. or two years, even if they're 28, 29 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would come back to even thinking about that's what ministry is, though. Mm -hmm. You know, like, sure, it's convenient. Like, it could be convenient if I got to keep my students for eight or ten years. Um, but but God calls us to constantly be doing this regardless of the time commitment, I think. Yes. Can you say something about, like, piggybacking off of Sarah, how you've made it so the programs can move forward even though your staff doesn't stay, your student staff? <clears throat> what do you mean? Like, you have different worship leaders every one to two years, but mm -hmm. but it's not as if those previous leaders weren't there. They, they still build on all of each other's work and still make their services better. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, in time, the longer that I get to work with students, the more I teach them these lessons so that they're doing it to the people younger than them, you know, and, and hopefully by the second or third year of working <coughs> with them, um, they don't even realize that they've learned these lessons. They're just habits, and they begin using them. And um, and sometimes that can be disappointing because we get to the end of the year. I'm like, what did you learn? And they're not articulating this, but they demonstrated it to me. And so I know that they've learned it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the context for where this happens with the mentoring? Is it, yeah. are they planned times? Are they hangout times? Are they in homes? I struggle yeah. with that, just how to yeah. be present and be available. Or is it more planned times because just the schedules with everybody, it's mm -hmm. hard. Yeah, it's both. It's, it's definitely both. I mean, um, if they are working for me, they've been awarded an, a position um, in ministerial leadership here. And if you've been awarded a position, there are expectations for that. And part of that is training and meetings. Those are expectations. But the mentoring part, I would say, is more of, like, openness in those meetings to see where they go um, sometimes we don't cover what I wanted to cover but just asking and connecting um, helps me ask more questions and all of a sudden we've gone on a rabbit trail and our time is up um, and usually those times give way to a student reaching out for further conversation um, and then I'll say I'll, I'll judge like okay is this like a Starbucks is this a private, are there gonna be tears? <laughs> do I need to get the Kleenex ready? Um, and I do try to invite them to my home occasionally just so they see my life and know my people and know that it's a mutual relationship. This isn't like a top-down type, type of thing. Um, but sometimes I long for that part and it never comes too. And I just have to trust that God has brought other people in their life to do that. And, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And one follow-up to what mm -hmm. you said earlier about helping students when you're holding them accountable. And yeah, I think you gave an example of when they kind of mail it in, you say, hey, you know, the excellence point. Mm -hmm. it, is it hard to do that with students? They take it pretty well, or how does that, how do they react? I mean, I'm sure sometimes they hate me. <laughs> I'm sure sometimes. Uh, Sometimes I'm sure I become a, a butt of a joke or something, you know, for it. But, um, but I try to do. I, I try to set it up as though I'm saying this because I love you, because I want you to be successful, because I know you're good at this, and I know you can get better. Um, and I think because it starts with such a, tr a truthful affirmation. It, it destroys the, like, ah, uh, Lauren's correcting me. And it's more, I hope it's, it's art or received more as a Lauren believes in me type of thing. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it question. may be one of the first times some of them might have that kind of a genuine 
face to face where the people someone's kind of helping them. Maybe and 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 some some like I said some um, are are not open to it, um, but but I think especially those who have their mind opened and are are able to fit a chair into their water bottle type <laughs> of idea, um, they're much more willing to receive the the criticism. If I, I do, like, just because if a student isn't um, open to the criticism, then I might then I might personally take time to scale it back and think about how do I take this overarching criticism and break it down into four smaller things that we can work on one at a time or mm -hmm. something like that. Okay. Sometimes they're more open to it that way. Breaking it down. Yeah. Okay. Can I just add to? Yeah. That Josh was one of my I've students. I've experienced this process for the past two years working. For it. And with, with like the criticism piece, it's always paired with real relationship. I'd say and that's that's like the huge difference is if you, and even at the beginning of the year with new you know with new employees, it's a little bit you can't necessarily expect to just put all the flaws on the table and establish trust mm -hmm. anymore. And so I feel like she always tries to establish we are in we're co-workers moving towards this goal together and we trust each other mm -hmm. and on that foundation it's really easy to be like oh yeah I didn't I'm not perfect mm -hmm. and so I just and I think uh, other students who've worked for it would say that there's a relationship that gives you confidence to take critique. Mm -hmm. Thank you Joshua. Mm -hmm. I guess they affirm you too. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, let me pray over you guys. And, and I'll call it. God, thank you for um, the gift of being people of faith who get to walk alongside other people of faith. Thank you for the trials that come and for the celebrations that come. Thank you for the ways that you um, move in those spaces to refine us and to breathe life into us and to reveal things to us we and uh, ex expose us to things we never imagined um, seeing were possible. God, I pray over each um, person in this room. God, people who are empowering and equipping um, people around them and emerging adults in their lives. God, I pray that you would give them imagination and creativity for uh, how to do this in a way that encourages these young people to join in for in what you're doing in the world um, god thank you that you create us with unique giftings and talents and i pray that you would give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear what those are so that we can use them um, for your glory in jesus name amen amen thank you guys